What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. I watched Corpse uh, last oh, night. Oh, yeah. So that very different uh, very different um, scenario there with that film. But, uh, yeah, cool. So um, I, how, uh, how either bored or disturbed were you at the end? That's usually one of the two uh, reactions. Well, I've often had that, you know, thing where... I've wanted to, I've watched a film and I've always wondered, been like, what drugs were the director on? <laughs> right. And now I can finally ask that right. question. You totally can. <laughs> you totally can. Uh, believe it or not, 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 not none. Um, well, I don't know. Beyond the uh, caffeine's a drug, nicotine's a drug. It's probably some, some marijuana in there somewhere. But no, I was, uh, I was fairly, um, like normal in terms of me that was uh a lot of the stuff that came out of that was uh i mean i can save this for i can save this with a talk or whatever i can say it twice it's uh a lot of that actually came out of two things like both my experimental film background because that's kind of like quote unquote what i was trained in and like who i studied with the dudes that i studied with uh and that intersecting with uh using like basically trying to adopt occult practices in order to make the film, which was not, I mean, it's not a one-to-one ratio. It was a pretty weird thing. And I, I mean, I can talk, I, you know, happy to talk about that, but yeah, it was like, I basically started using, um, yeah, I, I started trying to adopt like, uh, uh, not ceremonial magic, not like, you know, uh, uh, daggers and robes or anything like that. But I'd say stuff more from like, 
uh, you know, probably more from like a chaos magic or like, you know, um, a general sort of adopted Western esotericist, practices from Western esotericism, and then from my sort of weird uh, uh, secret upbringing in a Sufi cult that I kind of like tried to bring stuff together uh, uh, to try it out for the first time with that film. So, yeah, that's the that's the result you get is this incredibly psychedelic piece. Yeah, that's that's interesting. We just uh, interviewed a, a couple weeks ago uh, Carl Abrahamson and talked to him, and he he kind of had some similar thoughts about his artistic and filmmaking processes. Oh yeah, that's great. I'm psyched to hear that. Then that's very cool. Yeah, I think that there are some people that are you know beyond the general like talking about Kenneth Anger or anything like yeah. that. You know, there's. I think there are more and more people who are starting to think about, you know, well, I mean, there have been for a long time thinking about this in terms of art in general, but I think more specifically like filmmaking, which is just such a, like a, a, it's such a specific like practice within, you know, the subset of creativity. Uh, but I think more and more people mm-hmm. are trying to find ways to kind of get out of that um, or at least, I don't know, try to find ways to break out of the narrative structure. At least that's the way I think about it, at least is that in, in a lot of ways, uh, I think, most people, not everybody, I don't want to generalize, I think most people are pretty sophisticated when it comes to visual language, but Mm -hmm. I do think that there's this, um, in a different way than you might say about like music or film, uh, I'm sorry, about music or uh, uh, literature, that film is really relegated to sort of this narrative space. And don't get me wrong, I think that like narrative, you know, they kind of go hand in hand in the same way that, you know, literature goes hand in hand to some degree with narrative. But there are like, I think people are, you know, uh, when they think of films, they're really thinking of a story, whereas there's a lot more you can do with a moving image. And, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. of course, me coming from like my education and background and sort of my my particular feelings about it. But I think it's still kind of untapped in terms of, you know what 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 it's being what it can be uh used for or maybe it's not untapped because honestly we're being you know severely mind controlled through moving image media by yes <laughs> <laughs> so that's not the case at all well it seems to be a continuation of that kind of wagnerian uh ultimate art form that combines audio and visual and time and space and everything into one right um and of course like the you know more uh the people who more warn against the occult uh, definitely like to point that out too. Oh, completely. Yeah. Well, it reminds that reminds me you're talking about it in terms of having these different, like um, uh, uh, sort of the different artistic currents or, you know, disciplines. Um, mm-hmm. There's something that uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Maya Darren you probably are maybe, I don't know. She's a filmmaker. Um, she was a filmmaker in like the fifties and sixties and she's very cool in that, Uh, She was sort of one of the first, not one of the first, but at least in terms of like, you know, um, uh, 20th century filmmaking, she really incorporated uh, the occult, even though it was not um, explicit. Uh, You know, a lot of the she was really into um, uh, uh, Haitian voodoo and uh, symbolist poetry and sort of interesting stuff like gestalt. Uh, psychology, but she was making these films um, uh, uh, up until like she died in the early 60s and uh, they're essentially these sort of like proto 
um, I, not not proto. They're they're still. Uh, I still they still. I mean, I'm a film professor, so I teach them in my class, and it's sort of this thing that you know many people who uh, are, know about film history uh, know about Maya Darren's work. Her most famous film is Meshes of the Afternoon, which is this sort of surrealist film she made in the uh, early '40s. But yeah, she did a lot of like a lot of her films. Um, you know, we used these different used film as a particular medium in order to reenact these. She's a dancer. These um, uh, sort of performances. So uh, I think sort of in a similar way that like uh, if anybody knows the work that Alkistis from Scarlet Imprint does of incorporating like movement uh, into sort of an occult practice. That was something that Maya Darren was doing. She has this really important essay um, that I always uh, hand out to my students, which is about. Um, it's called the creative use of reality, and you know, she's writing this in the '40s, and she's talking about is exactly what you said. How you know, film has this. Uh, it you know, she specifically talks about it in terms of art, the art you know uh, disciplines at the time. So she's you know, it has the the movement that comes from. Um, you know, dance. It has the performative nature of theater. It's got the um, you know, uh, 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 you're using like space and set set design. So it's got like that sort of sculptural element, and then it's got sound and all these things. And how you know, it's really sort of this philosophical treatise on the specialness of film. And I, I mean, I agree with you. I don't think that's kind of. I don't think that's gone away. And I think mm-hmm. the more and more we see, uh, even things like you know, virtual augmented reality not catch on in the way that people think they are like it's going to replace you know the the cinematic experience i think that you know keeps on to me at least proving that it's not it's like it's still a medium that you know uh we haven't you know squeezed the life out of it as you you know a lot of hot takes will say well you see i i think we've already started we've got <laughs> we've, we've done our or- organic start Cool. So yeah, Tim Banal is here. I saw Tim Banal. Tim Banal. What's going on, guys? How so, you doing, Tim? I haven't seen you since the uh, uh, since the 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 crypto, crypto conference con. last year. Yeah, I know. How Congrats you hanging in? The success of the movie since it's been released. I'm so happy. Uh, people are getting a chance to see it now. In no small part to uh, to you, you'll you'll be the star of uh, our next film. I kid you not. We'll talk about that's that later. what I've been hearing. I, I look forward yeah. to it. I'm, I'm yeah. definitely down. I'd, I'd like yeah. to stretch stretch my wings out on uh, in the next movie. So be fun. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. From, I mean, that is from Fry Cook to leading role. Yeah. So and as I, you, there you go. As, go, go ahead. As, well, introduce who we got here. So, of course, welcome to Get Spare Normal. We've already gotten started. And we've got uh, Chris Ernst on the line, and Chris has directed and produced a film called The Hill and the Hole, and we also have someone that is actually in the movie, and is a good friend of ours, Tim Banal. So welcome to Conspiracy Normal, guys. Hey, what's going on, guys? Hello, thank you. Sorry, I might have had some dogs barking in the background. (laughs) They're gone now. Oh, no problem. No problem. We have dogs bark in the background a lot on this show, All so right. it's not it's not a big deal. A couple of episodes ago, we had to stop the show because somebody's dog went crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, so you know, it is it is what it is. But uh, so, Chris, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. It's your first Thank time you so here. Much. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. I'm a, a longtime listener, uh, so it's uh, an honor to be uh, nice. now speaking to you, gentlemen. Yeah, well, awesome. thank you. 
an equal honor to be speaking to you as well. We really, <laughs> uh, we both really enjoyed the movie. That's awesome. So it's, it's this interesting little weird movie called the hill in the hole, as we described later or earlier. And, um, I guess really Chris will kind of just start with kind of like the idea for this movie. Like what, what made you, what kind of inspired you to make it? That's, uh, uh, well, first, first thing I should shout out is I should shout out to my, uh, uh, my co-creator, uh, Bill Darman, who's, you know, really without him, this wouldn't exist because he and I sort of do things together as a duo. Um, yeah, it's, a uh, it, it's, uh, independent feature um that uh i made with bill um we were both directors um bill wrote it and i was the cinematographer for it um it is based on a short story by uh fritz Leiber, uh who for any of you don't know who fritz Leiber is he's a kind of amazing pulp writer that uh his most famous piece is probably this the uh, Sword and Sorcery series, Fafford and the Grey Mouser. Um, and he's the guy who came up with the uh, term Sword and Sorcery. Um, and uh, so he was a kind of prolific, prolific uh, pulp writer. Say that five times fast. Uh, prolific pulp writer. Um, and uh, this is one of his really short stories. So it's like it's like a, only a few pages long. You can find it online. Um, and... Uh, Bill and I wanted to do uh, a story, wanted to do a film that kind of um, encompassed all of all of our interests in this like melting pot way that has to do with uh, paranormal, um, you know, occult, uh, um, uh, American weirdness, uh, the Southwest, um, you know, uh, cinematic tropes of the supernatural. Uh, and Bill had been um, uh, Bill Darman and. Uh, our friend Kyle Haroldson and uh, Ryan Darman, Bill's brother, had done this um, uh, web web series called Mandate 33 several years ago, where it was essentially like a road trip that was using um, Jim Brandon's Weird America and uh, Rebirth of Pan as like roadmaps for places that they were going around uh, America. And you can still find it if you go to Mandate 33. Uh, on YouTube, you can find the uh, the webisodes of these short little ones. And, and they were doing it before Hellier. They were doing it before Hellier. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> uh, they were doing it before Hellier, though. I think it was less of a personal, like, uh, synchromistic um, uh, uh, journey for them. Um, or at least they, there were less uh, less things that were happening to them. Though I don't think they were trying to instigate them. The guy Kyle is a uh, he's a hardcore skeptic, and I think he would have like negated most things. Um, oh, yeah. uh, at, but that was you know that was the model that they had for it. Uh, anyway, so yeah, they're doing this, and so through that, Bill had kind of uh, um, uh, he'd become friends with like Go Rightly, and um, you know he knew Greg Bishop and Lauren uh, Coleman and stuff like. Like that and so uh we were like all right well let's just try to do this we had this short story that we got the rights to from the library estate um uh bill was like you know i'm just gonna call up uh, go rightly see if he wants to be in this you know i started helping in terms of doing the uh film production uh bill was writing it and it was kind of a whirlwind like we decided to do it uh like the spring of 2016 shot it in the summer of 2016 um and it's been slowly we've been slowly putting it out since then and finishing it and trying to do finishing funds and stuff um but it's out now and uh you know it's i think for anybody that's you know 
at least I don't know if I I ever have the right sort of uh, a take on my films, but I always describe it to people. This film, at least, as being sort of like uh, you know if if Jim Jarmusch and David Lynch tried to do like a you know an eighties horror movie or something like that. Um, <laughs> right, right. So it's got like this kind of you know it's it's quirky, it's small, it's an indie film. Uh, you know, you got some uh, sort of uh, the the performances. You know, are like it's. Uh, I don't want to say campy, but it's got like uh, it's got kind of a quirky feel to it. And I know everybody, you know, hate the word quirky, but um, uh, it's a little quirky. It's weird. We tried to totally embrace the weird. Uh, you know, the film we shot all on location in New Mexico. Uh, we were driving all around. Uh, we shot a little bit of it in uh, Massachusetts too, which is where Mr. Banal showed up. Um, uh, we had some pickups there. Uh, but yeah, we most of it was like kind of another road trip where we were driving all around New Mexico, um, uh, and really kind of letting the letting the land become the backdrop and the set for it. And uh, it's it was great. I mean, you know, I the at least in terms of the experience, it was it was a whirlwind. And if you know, you, next time you speak to Go Rightly, you can ask him what his experience was like on it. Uh, he was. He was totally cool with it. I think some of the actors were like, what is this? It's kind of crazy punk rock filmmaking. But um, uh, yeah, that was um, so it's uh, I think for anybody that is interested in sort of like, you know, cult films, genre uh, stuff, genre horror, uh, particularly anybody that, you know, I think anybody that listens to this uh, yes. uh, to listen to this show definitely will enjoy it. Um, uh, and you know, I think beyond that, though, uh, we have had some some pretty good responses from like horror buffs and people who are like really steeped in kind of like uh, horror films, sci-fi, fantasy films from like 70s, 80s and 90s, which is really what we sort of grew up on, too. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it incorporates a lot of that that vibe. Um, but yeah, I'd say to anybody listening, check it out. It's on Amazon. It's on Prime uh, for free if you got a Prime subscription and a cheap rental if you want to rent it. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be there for at least another few months. Uh, but if film festivals start happening again, it's a possibility we might have to pull it for a short amount of time. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, um, Tim, who do you play in this film? Uh, I play Adam's uh, assistant, I guess you could say, or uh, his fry fry cook. I play a uh, yeah uh, a fried dough cook in the movie. It was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. It was an interesting experience. Uh, you don't realize how how much work goes into making a movie until you've been a part of it. Just for my little scene there, uh, it took us like all night to do. Yeah. Uh, and because uh, these these guys, um, the 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 crew there that made the movie, they're so professional. Like you don't think you think like, oh, you're just gonna film it once. It's like, no, we did it from like eight different angles. It was really, it was a really eye opening experience uh, that I enjoyed quite a bit. So, and it, it's uh, you you gain a lot of respect for the people that make the movie, the people who are in the movie, because you got to keep. You got to keep, uh, you know, you got to you got to do the scene over and over and over again, um, you know, for the different angles and, and everything. So it's it's kind of it, it is pretty it's tiring, but also it's very like start and stop. It's a, it's a really interesting experience. Um, you know, I, I would love to do it again because uh, just the one time alone was like really it was pretty awesome. And I was like, this is this is a really cool experience. And uh, yeah, no. 
it was for cool. real for real tim like we've been I, i've been talking to bill and, and i was you know i mean sort of joking be- with adam before the show but i'm i mean if we ever get to the point where we can do things with each other again physically um <laughs> when we start <laughs> making films again that and uh you know the whole funding of film thing no we totally we're like oh we should get we, it should be like a kolchak type thing like night stalker yeah. Yeah. and you nice. should totally wear you should totally be wearing <sighs> like your you know your your mc um uh uniform and if i st- i used to have it died last year but i used to have a 77 crown vic that would have been the, oh, best, oh. the best prop car for this um i'm <laughs> kicking myself that that thing died so yeah we get the funds together you'll be getting the call it'll, it'll nice. be great i'm psyched for it i would well, definitely pi- be down for that i'm picturing i'm picturing banal with like a <laughs> trench coat well, and... with, tr- with that uh with a cross kind of like what red pill junkie yeah yeah. yeah 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 totally kind of like the <laughs> that idea yeah. yeah we have to get uh, uh, go, go rightly's got to be the the heavy too he's got to be the bad guy All, always the <laughs> oh bad guy. yeah <laughs> yeah the hood right yeah <laughs> have, but, have but you I, got an imdb uh entry now tim i think i might but i'm not he sure should. if if we did our work i think i think he should there i'll look go, it man. up i'll check it out yeah, I didn't even I didn't even like look for that kind of thing. But yeah, it's cool. I what I really uh, what I really enjoy a lot about it too, uh, which Chris might be able to speak to is because I only got like a taste of it. This is part of why I was like I'd like to do more of this because uh, there was really and I mean this not like there's no real there was like uh, I was gonna say like a traveling circus, but it was more like a rock band kind of feel where it was just like every you could tell the gang had been all together on this journey, the folks making the movie, I just came for the day. So I was just kind of like meeting people or the night and was meeting people and everything. But like the more I kind of watched them um, and Chris might be able to enlighten me because I couldn't, my memory's foggy. It was like three years ago and I don't quite recall, but a couple of the guys had just driven literally across the country. Oh yeah. 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 They had, it was, it was, (laughs) uh, we had finished shooting in northern New Mexico, and we had to make it to, in order to get this fried dough truck in Massachusetts uh, that we were shooting in. And so some of us flew, but that some of us had to actually drive the gear back because it wasn't gear we rented in New Mexico. It was gear that we had here. So, uh, yeah, it was Bill and um, our friend um, uh, Billy, uh, who's this uh, probably the closest thing to like a legit cowboy that you will ever meet. Um, they drove, I want to say in like 36 hours from yeah, New crazy. Mexico to Massachusetts. Yeah. Cause yeah. I guess if, if it is in New Mexico, it'd probably be fried bread or Navajo tacos. huh? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, this was, it was, I, you know, from a filmmaking standpoint and I really should, you know, I shouldn't admit this seeing as how I am a film professor by trade. Uh, it like the production in terms of how we set it up, it was really, it was not the smartest production. Uh, it was really kind of like, as it, you do with, you know, independent productions of any kind, music, you know, film, whatever, we just, you know, you're calling in all the favors you can. And it turned out that it was cheaper to do several of these sort of like big shoots near where we had things we could get for free. So yeah. like if you're watching the, you know, obviously, so if you're watching the film, like the uh, baseball uh, scene, it's actually two different places. It's one place. And if you watch it, you can kind of be like, oh, I, I kind of see that. It shot, um, uh, we had one baseball diamond that we could get 
just for for like the wide shot where there's this really long conversation scene with Go Rightly uh, looking okay. over the the uh, baseball diamond, and then all the close-ups are done where we could get a little league team for free, which was in Massachusetts. Um, so yeah, we had to like cut back and forth between those. Uh, and the fried dough truck is in the same space there, and we were able to get one for free. So the magic of filmmaking, cutting between different different locations. Did they yeah. actually have the fryers going? Oh yeah, yeah we did. Yeah, we did have yeah. the fryer going. I think I think we did. No, you totally did. You fried up some good bread. I remember our uh, our, pro- <laughs> our production designer commented on how you and Billy, the other guy that was that was uh, Karate's assistant, they were like, she was like, yeah. you guys fried up some good stuff. <laughs> you didn't skimp on the powdered sugar. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but yeah, to, to sort of yeah to go back a little bit to what I was saying in a sense, it was like it, it was sort of it had this like traveling traveling band feel to it that yeah. I was like I want to be a part of this gang yeah. that's been that's been working together uh, and checking in and out of hotels and sort of just do, you know sleeping in cars and driving yeah. across country in, in a day and a half and all that. It was like this is this the, the, there was a, a passion there. Mm-hmm. That was infectious. And yeah, just being around it for like one day, I was like, oh my God, this is, uh, you know, they it, they were all exhausted, but it was like that euphoric exhaustion. And it was yeah. like, I want, yeah, it's like, I want to tap into that, man. I want to, I want to like push, <laughs> see, see how far I can push it, dude. This sounds, this is like awesome. I was looking at them in this euphoric state of exhaustion and uh, I was genuinely like envious where I was like, I want to yeah. be I was so yeah. I was wondering as I was watching it because I knew it was primarily filmed in New Mexico, and then I was thinking, did Banal gets go to New Mexico? Like I, right. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. But yeah. Uh, so yeah, you kind of have to do what you what you have to do. And having just organized a conference not that long ago, I could kind of relate to that. <laughs> oh, totally. It's the same, like, I mean, that's really all, like, producing a film is at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, not like, you know, the directing, it's, that's a whole different, but producing, oh, it's pulling the same stuff together. Like, it's, that's why, you know, it, I, I always encourage people that are good at, like, organizing stuff to become film producers, because there are a lot of us, like, me at least, I I end up doing it, but, you know, I'm kind of an introvert, and I'd much rather be just, like, behind the camera, you know, not worrying about all the other stuff that has to be done. Like I worry about, you know, paying my bills at home enough. I don't want to have to worry about the rest of that stuff. So it's, yeah, being a film producer, we need more of you in the world because you're amazing people if you can do that. Yeah, you just kind of pull it all together. Um, I was I was going to, I wanted to ask you, Chris, though, about like what um, the mythology that kind of like this is based in. Yeah. And then, like the 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 story itself, was there a lot of elements that you pulled from the story? Because I understand it's not that long of a sure. story. Sure. Yeah. So the story itself, um, it's essentially about a, um, a Bureau of Land Management uh, employee. It's set, I want to say, during like might have been set during like the Depression, Dust Bowl. But it's essentially about this uh, BLM employee who goes to a farm. And uh, there's a hill that is reading out as being uh, a hole. And uh, he sort of has this ghostly encounter with the, or sort of this, you know, the spooky encounter with the girl and um, uh, the, the landowner there. And, you know, she talks to him about, you know, uh, the, their, you know, these 
entities that sort of, you know, live there and that they try to pull you in. And it's essentially a ghost story. Um, and so we took that, which if you, you know, you watch the film, it's sort of the same thing. Bureau of Land Management guy ends up on this farm. This is a creepy little girl. He has an altercation with the uh, landowner. Um, uh, and so that's the essential story. And so when we were trying to put in all of this other stuff in there, which was really like a hodgepodge of local lore and, you know, sort of general, like, um, conspiracy and, uh, uh, you know, uh, occult mythology tropes and stuff like that. Um, we really didn't think about trying to do it in any, uh, I don't know, like authentic way. So, you know, we're not like, even though there is, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, there is a really huge, um, uh, mythology and there's a lot of stuff written about this mound culture and these mounds that exist all over the United States. Uh, and there are other, you know, mound structures that exist elsewhere in the world, uh, earthworks. Um, most of these uh, are attributed to Native American tribes, but essentially most of the Native American tribes who were, you know, living in the areas where some of these mounds are, um, like Serpent Mound in Ohio being one of the most famous ones, they say, we don't know where these came from. They were here before, you know, so they either were being reappropriated and reused by the people that were living there, or they came from uh, somebody earlier. Uh, they talk about the mound culture, the mound builders, I'm sorry, uh, is a name that's sort of bandied around, um, uh, like archaeological or, uh, uh, you know, ancient archaeological um, uh, discussions, but nobody really knows who they are. So uh, a lot of the stuff that is wrapped up in this mythology is, uh, you know, it intersects with other things like uh, giant skeletons being found in some of these mounds, allegedly, yep. uh, uh, you know, ancient um, ancient cultures, you know, pre... Um, uh, uh, what was the name of the... Oh, gosh. The, um, what's the name of the... The Clovis? Is it Clovis? Like pre-Clovis? Pre-Clovis, um, yeah. Yeah, pre-Clovis. So there's all the stuff that's attached to the mound culture. Um, the Kenseta, uh, uh, is that what it is? The red-headed cannibal tribes? Um, Ken, I'm mispronouncing the name of it. Uh, but this is like another legend, you know, from uh, the Southwest and Central America about these, you know, tribes of uh, red-headed, uh, like, cannibal um uh humanoids that uh some you know allegedly some tribes had um uh like battles with or you know fought there are these legends that come through this so we took all that stuff but then we also took this kind of um uh you know, uh, it, it, I would say a lot of this has to do with Goreitley's influence, too. Um, a lot of uh, kind of kooky conspiracy culture. So, like, Masonic, you know, riffing on, like, Masonic secret societies. Uh, you know, not to give too much away in spoilers, but there's, like, you know, this sort of secret society that's part of the um, uh, uh, part of the plot in the film that we added there. Uh, uh, and so things like that. Um, too. So we didn't like want to limit ourselves to one particular thing. It was kind of like to throw it all in there to get like the whiff, the mouthfeel of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, general uh, of the, you know, whatever this confluence of 40 in. I mean, we're really, we, Bill and I are, are very much, you know, consider our interests. We, we would label it to be 40 in and that we like, we are uh, very much interested in, you know, everything without judgment on what it may or may not be uh, and how it may be, you know, uh, how these things may be connected to one another. Uh, but it's all fair game as far as we're concerned. 
and probably all, all connected. Yeah. <laughs> it all ties kind of into this like carnivalesque, uh, weird Americana, all these different mythos together. Absolutely. Um, and then with that southwestern landscape too, it just really creates this really mysterious atmosphere. And uh, I really dug it, man. I had a little personal screening in my basement with my projector and had some popcorn and colas with my girlfriend and we watched it and um, really enjoyed it. It just has, especially for listeners of Conspiracy Normal or anyone into all this stuff, it has so much of it um, that you'll recognize. But at the same time, even if someone isn't as like steeped in all this stuff as us, they'll still really enjoy it because it's a yeah, good film. Yeah. You know, we actually had a, we were just on a podcast uh, talking, there's this, um, uh, these folks that are archaeologists that do this uh, like horror film podcast, and man, we were terrified when they said they were going to review this film because we're like, this is the worst, most like inaccurate. Like we didn't even think about this from like a legitimate arc. Either that, or they're going to yeah. you know come at us and be like, oh, well, you guys like Graham Hancock or or whatever it is. And they were <laughs> awesome. They were like the greatest, and they actually yeah. said they like they didn't pick it apart. I mean, they loved it in terms of it. You know, they liked it as a movie, as a horror movie, and they just sort of approached it as that. Um, uh, but even, but yeah, even the archaeological stamp, even the, the the points of archaeology, I could just imagine the same thing. Like you know, like when a doctor watches, you know, ER, they're like, you don't do that, you know, that right? Kind of thing. Well, all that, all that, there's that mound builder mythos is so ripe for things like this, the prima materia for for fiction, because it's really interesting. The all the different myths. You have a giant skeleton in the movie, you know, and that's part of like the whole right. uh, vast Smithsonian cover-up idea, right. and you know, all these kind of myths. They're it, it's really great for fiction. I could see. Right, right, yeah. I mean, I think that that's you know, for me at least, as somebody who's since I was a little kid been interested in all of this stuff. I'm one of those uh, time life kids. I like to call. Or at least oh, yeah. I have this theory that like there's a whole. You know, slew of us that in the eighty, you know, eighties, we read the Time Life series on Mysteries of the it? Unknown. Yeah, Mysteries of the Unknown. Um, yeah, uh, I've got them all right here, uh, right, right in, in view. God, they were the best. Yeah, you, I had yeah, he's, you got the whole set. Yeah, I got the whole set. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah, um, and so I think there's this whole like set of us that has that. That's sort of like our touchstone for uh, uh, for the strange, the weird, or at least that started things. Well, the mounds, mounds. Like Sir was saying like the mound stuff that's becoming, I think more and more recognized lately, especially with guys like Graham Hancock's America before book. And right. where he talks right. about the mounds and right. the civil, the civilizations that were here before, but that's a, that was a it's, huge, huge thing in the, in like the 19th century. And, and we, we've kind of discovered that like, even here around Tennessee, our area is just yeah. covered in them. Yeah. yeah, well, it has a deep, dark history, um, and someone from our our area in Middle Tennessee here, uh, John Haywood, Judge John Haywood, was mm. one of the one of the people really responsible for propagating a lot of these kind of um, British Israeliism and almost Mormon like myths, and right. then uh, also the he's probably the one of the number one reasons why the 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 giants and pygmy mummy myths really got spread. Yeah. Well, a lot of that too, I mean, not, I think I mentioned this, I think I mentioned this when we were talking on where did the road go, but one of the things that we, you know, wanted to make sure of, and I think it's important to bring up when you're talking about any of this is the sort of, is the, 
uh, the representation of sort of native or indigenous cultures when it comes to the mounds and stuff like this, essentially in the way that like you don't want everything to be like buried on an Indian burial ground thing, you know, which I think is just there's a little bit more, I don't know, sophistication or, you know, a more awareness of the actuality of, you know what we know about history and how these different cultures sort of existed. Um, yeah. And there was one thing we didn't want, we wanted to, it, it was, you know, we had a couple of conversations. We were wondering, at least I think I remember, maybe I had them with myself um, about, uh, you know, how we're it, like, we don't want this to be represented as like, you know, um, Indian burial, Indian, you know, uh, Indian ghosts coming back or something like that, which is just, you know, to me just doesn't yeah. feel kind of quite right. Uh, but as, part of that was, you know, and I think it made it very easy for us to lean into this idea of, you know, um, these essentially like the creatures we've created are yeah, more otherworldly kind of goofy. They're more other. I mean, we were thinking of like, you know, Cyclops, they're, they're cy like weird sort of like Cyclops. Uh, I mean, essentially, I was thinking of Ray Harryhausen. We were putting them together in like the, right. the Sin Sinbad right. skeletons and stuff like yeah. that. So, um, some kind of weird cosmic alchemy thing, like the Brandon ideas. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I think that you know when one is looking at sort of this the ma the mound culture stuff, you it, it you have to be careful in terms of the stuff yes. that you're reading, like parsing out what is essentially like colonialist bs versus what's actually happening but there i mean it is it, it is ripe for fiction and also i think for continued i mean as you said as graham hancock is doing but in particular the mounds i mean these are these are mysteries that still exist and it's you know they're right in our backyard and i find that to be yeah. pretty fantastic almost literally in my backyard here right it's, yeah uh, this this whole area of around Nashville was literally one giant mass grave, stone box graves. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a real it's really great movie. All the all those different mythos. Um, anyone who's in this culture really really like it. Um, there's one thing I really want to talk about in it that struck me was this idea of surveyors of being the keepers of, of these like American yeah. secrets. Yeah. And yeah. that's, oh, that's yeah. like, I think, you know, that's one of the biggest that, nuggets of it. And there's a lot behind it. I want to know what initially kind of, uh, besides the book, what yeah. did you guys draw from? That is uh that's all bill. And he's had this, um, uh, it's something that, you know, he actually, grew up for part of uh, his childhood in um, Colorado outside of Denver uh, near some very, very weird places that were there. Um, and I, uh, I think if I remember correctly, uh, it was at that point or like he had some interaction with the BLM or there was something that earlier on in his life, like essentially got him interested in these, you know, people that were, uh, uh, were pretty much tasked to like take care of um uh, or or not not take care of but kind of be like uh the the buffy's job buffy's uh like giles you know watcher to the uh mm -hmm. like the southwest and all the weirdness there um and uh so yeah anyway he was the one that came up with the idea uh and uh yeah i mean it seems like it, it tracks really well and i'm glad you picked up on that i mean i would assume you would like because we were thinking about you know um uh essentially th uh the fact that you know blm you know they are particularly in the southwest and in the west maybe not so much these days uh but at least <laughs> yeah, right. you know uh, back in sort of during the um 
the the hots the the hot spot or you know during the time in which a lot of the historically um, uh, relevant you know big UFO big weirdness that was going on in the Southwest was happening. The BLM people were you know always there. So I think this idea of trying to create sort of like an Indiana Jones, not really Indiana Jones, but more like yeah these the the, the BLM is that they're the the keepers of the the you know the secrets of uh, um, like geomancy well not geomancy but uh yeah that's uh, yeah. yeah that's some of it i mean yeah. because make, making maps is like a can be seen as a magical act in itself and exactly yeah and with the with the brand and stuff you definitely have the tie-in to the james shelby downard stuff with the yep. mystical toponymy and yep. naming of places and all of that so it's it's yep. right up my alley man i really i really caught on to that current in it yeah oh that's great yeah no i'm glad that's that's totally intentional and you know we had a we actually had an idea to try to create um, uh, an extended universe where the BLM is like, they're like the good guys or not good guys, but they're the protagonists that we follow at least. Yeah. Uh, whether or not that'll happen, I don't know, but that would be like, instead of, you know, instead of a private investigator, you're, it's, it's the BLM. Well, they can really know. use it now. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that was another thing too, that like when Bill was writing this, he did think about like the whole Eamon Bundy thing was happening yes. at the time. And so mm -hmm. that was something that was definitely present in his mind with the, uh, the characters, um, uh, of like the rancher and his, cr and, you know, his cronies, not that we're representing that at all in a, you know, uh, as it actually happened, but that, that sort of relationship and that current was something we were thinking about too. Yeah. The ranchers, yeah. The rancher and his toadies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and the, the the mound, the hill, is an actual Indian mound. Is that correct? It's not. It's an actual mound. It's not uh a it's a um uh it is a geologic uh not anomaly, but uh there are very few of them. Um and it is uh actually probably about I don't know, six hundred miles away from the the farm ranch that it that's it's a digitally moved we we moved that uh, uh, mound. It's in um, Colorado, uh, and anybody who drives from like Denver or basically there's like one highway that goes up and down Colorado north to south, um, the major highway, and it's right off that in this area called her. It's called the Herfano Butte, and it's a naturally occurring butte that's on this uh, other parcel of land um, that uh, Ryan. Um, uh, one of our producers and Bill were doing scouting uh, along with our art director, Caitlin, and they saw it uh, as they were driving along the highway and like, oh, my God, we got to use that thing. Um, mm -hmm. So it's an actual it's it has uh, as far as we know, there were no um, cultures that, you know, were involved yeah. in doing anything there on it. But, uh, yeah, it's been around since time immemorial. Um, uh, it's in this really cool area right uh, at the southern part of um uh, Colorado, where it's essentially the Rockies meeting the plains there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's that's a spooky area, man. All that. Oh area. yeah. Oh yeah, ah. dude. I'm from a. I'm I'm from Arizona. I got a lot of family yeah. history in North New Mexico and Southern Colorado. So that's like my stomping grounds when I was a kid. I'm very yeah. familiar. But uh, my understanding is that there there isn't really much um, mound building earthworks until you get to uh down where phoenix is now right right um but uh you know there's all kinds of different uh i guess there's more of a um tendency to build with with adobe so there wasn't as much uh earthworks yeah. around the chaco canyon cultures and the anasazi stuff 
Right. No, this the, isn't the Bowd this... culture is much more in Eastern United States. Yeah. 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 Ohio Valley stuff. Yeah. We that's that's when I was saying like we weren't being in any way trying to be accurate, and we don't even yeah, say yeah. that it's New Mexico. We sort of like it's this. Uh, uh, originally, actually, wanted to do it out in um, uh, Sonora uh, area. Mm-hmm. I don't know if um, you guys have ever been out there, uh, but it's like. I mean, it's crazy. Like, it is the one of... Do you remember that film? Uh, it was uh, Robin Williams, LL Cool J, Barry Sonnenfeld's Toys. Do you remember that no. from the 90s? <laughs> I, rem- yeah, I, rem- yeah. I remember it, but I don't know if I ever saw it or not. Okay. Maybe, like, Toys Come to Life or something? Something along It was something kind of- like that. It was like, I want to say it was, yeah, Toys Come to Life, but there's like... Uh, it's like quirky, like Robin Williams is the heir to a toy fortune that they're going to, the military is going to use to like build weapons. I don't oh, know. okay. I remember Anyway, there's a whole series of like shots that are done in these hills. And some of them are the ones that were out in Sonora. And it's this really weird artificial, it looks like Teletubby world is what it looks like in, in many ways. Um, and we were out uh, there. Um, well, actually, the idea originally we were going to do it there is because uh, of the whole airships thing. And uh, Bill was researching some stuff about the uh, uh, NIMSA airship stuff out there. Um, oh, that from Walter Bosley stuff? Walter Bosley. Actually, we were out there more recently with Olaf Phillips doing some interviews for something that might come out at some point where we're talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, uh, yeah, it's not Walters in particular. Uh, there's another line that we were kind of looking at, which has to do with, um, uh, uh, the, the, which has to do with Del Shao, who's the guy who, you know, wrote the book, but his, um, uh, involvement with a secret society out there called the clampers, um, which are kind of like the odd fellows, uh, I haven't heard. I haven't heard this part. That's, that's yeah. Well, me. this is uh, uh, I shouldn't probably say too much. Bill, Bill will smack me because we're still in the middle of looking into <laughs> it. Swore to a blood oath. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's okay. I think we talked about this uh, on the last when we were on Where Did the Road Go. But yeah, uh, essentially, there's um, Charles Delshaw, who was the guy. Not to go too far off topic, uh, but Charles Delshaw, the guy who wrote the book that you know, or uh, who wrote the material that uh, ended up sort of uncovering the whole, um, uh, you know, NIMSA thing. And, you know, um, he was the one that was, he, he was the one that, um, uh, sort of, uh, the, the name that you hear about his folio and stuff. Anyway, he was in Sonora, uh, um, uh, which is like an old mining town. And there is a, a secret, there's a society there. I mean, I don't know if they call themselves secret. They're like, kind of like an odd fellows, uh, but they're called the clampers and he was a clamper and they're big tricksters. Um, and, uh, there's like a, there is a little bit further away, more towards like San Francisco, Walnut Creek area. There's this, uh, clamper sort of monument that shows like an airship. Uh, and anyway, there, we were, we're interested to see if there is a connection between the clamper society and sort of this, the whole airship mystery. Um, yeah. Well, that was yeah. that's another current in the movie that I really liked was the, you know, I guess the a lot of the popular culture um, is more focused on secret societies or some kind of global conspiracy, but yeah. secret societies in small towns is yeah. what's really interesting to me, and especially um, early early twentieth century. I mean, I think you really did have a, uh, you really did have a lot of you know small towns under total control of of secret societies in America, especially oh, in the sure. West, the South and yeah. the West. 
Yeah, I think this was like, you know, um, yeah, that was definitely something that we were thinking about. And the Clampers was, it was very much that. It's a weird, like, um, they're kind of like a Yosemite, like, they're trying to put out this sort of like Yosemite Sam type vibe. um, Okay. uh, Which is, and they're like, if you look up Clampers, it'll officially be called like a drinking club. But there's yeah. all this weird stuff out there. Like we started to talk to the people in Sonora and we were like, oh, can you tell us about the Clampers? And people like shut up and be like, oh, you don't want to go there. Which <laughs> is they, like, did they, did, they cl- did, they, did they clamp <laughs> they, up? They clamped up. Exactly. And you can't really tell if it's like a, uh, if it's, they don't want you to like mess with the good old boys that kind of run the town or if it's something yeah. else, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I'm not quite sure. And I, you know, I, me being, I mean, I, I, I would say that I am, uh, uh, um, I'm a healthy skeptic in the same way that I think anybody, you know, or at least the way that Kutchin would describe being a skeptic. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, to me in the beginning, I was like, oh, it's just, you know, it's just drinking buddies, just, you know, guys, it's, you know, there's nothing to it. But the more and more we sort of like, we're looking into it. There was some weird stuff. We went, went into this Clamper Cemetery with Olaf, and he ended up talking to this old dude who was, like, in the corner. And um, I guess, like, the old dude was opening up to him about all these weird, like, connections that the Clampers had and stuff like that. Um, whether or not uh, it was true, I'm not sure. But uh, I think there is something interesting there. So yeah, that's something we were working on. And um, just to finish up my earlier thought originally we're thinking about shooting it in Sonora ended up in New Mexico. Um, just because, uh, we had our art director had a bunch of places she's from there that we could use to shoot. Uh, but the geography is not supposed to be real geography. We're sort of in a, right. you know, a fictional America, fictional America, fictional weird America. Yeah. And the Southwest is great for that. So did your, uh, how, how did you go about scouting? Like, how did you find all these locations? I know you, you <laughs> said, uh, Bill found that, that hill. Yeah. But, uh, how did the other locations, how did you come about all that? So, um, it, it was actually, it was during, yeah, it was during the spring. Um, so I was still teaching, so I wasn't able to go out to do any of the actual physical location scouting. So Bill, our producer, Ryan, and our art director, Caitlin, they, um, Essentially, they uh, they just did a trip out there. They um, uh, drove around. Caitlin lived at that point in New Santa Fe, so they kind of used that as a, a home base. Um, but we shot all over the place, and it was that was actually probably one of the worst things about the shoot is how far the locations were away from each other, and how much doing a company move where we had to like move our entire production crew from one place to another that really ate up a lot more time than we thought we were going to have. So we ended up. Um, uh, Bill and Ryan and Caitlin, they basically drove through Santa Fe. She, she lived there. Like Caitlin has lived in New Mexico for a lot of her life. And Bill had done a lot of, you know, he lived there earlier in Colorado. So, so, you know, um, uh, and they did a lot of traveling. And so anyway, they knew the place, the, the area a little bit, but essentially it was road tripping is what they did. They took a week and they road tripped all around to try to find these places, um, which is a big part of what like Bill was doing. Bill and Ryan were doing with Mandate and it's kind of how we like, you know, I have sort of a history of doing that too. I did a film way back in the day that was uh, 
um, are my fir the first film I was a director of photography for uh, about the Bosnian pyramids, um, which I can talk about in a sec if you want. But the uh, uh, so they looked around there, uh, sort of as part of a road trip, and they basically ended up finding all these cool places that were pretty far away from each other. So we shot uh, in Vallecitos, which is like in the middle of nowhere, uh, kind of um, in in the basically it's in the the desert there. Uh, in the right smack in the middle of New Mexico. Then we had to drive to Santa Fe to do, which was about, uh, you know, 100, 100 something miles uh, to do the shoot uh, at the ballpark. And then the rest of the stuff we actually did mainly in nor around this northern New Mexico town called Raton, which is right uh, below the border with Colorado. And it's a fantastic town. They're like, the awesomest people there we went back to shoot a biker rally that they have there every year for the town and they're the sweetest people we love the 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 town of raton and um they really hooked us up so we ended up shooting a lot of the like getting a lot of locations through there like we got a cop to be in it through there and stuff like that um so it really was like boots on the ground work i think that ended up yielding it we, we really went into this with the idea that like you know we're doing a micro budget film and we're using this you know production design methodology of you know letting the you know just finding turnkey locations you know so letting the 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 state and its natural beauty and what it looks like yeah. essentially dictate it so yeah, so it was just like a, about a week of them driving around, sending me pictures, me commenting on it. Um, it didn't work out great in the end because we had so much travel, at least for our constitution, but it ended up looking great. So, you know, that's kind of the way that we always uh, shoot stuff. Like, I've always been, a, you know, I, I like to kind of wander around the, 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 the area and kind of get a feel for it and figure out places to shoot rather than like having a pre a predetermined idea of what something's going to look like. Well, I know that sometimes is a good idea and you have to do it in terms of pre-visualizing for filmmaking. Um, uh, you know, trying to have a more of like a, I don't know, feeling it out, a more of a Herzog mm -hmm. style, uh, you know, approach to getting to getting to the truth of the, the, the location well, it was very, very bad hurt song but yeah <laughs> yeah you really you, you guys really do a good uh, job of capturing that that sense of place that really yeah. adds to the atmosphere and and really really makes the movie yeah well, what i was I, w I wanted to ask about uh getting lauren coleman right kind of, kind of involved i mean he's yeah he's, he's there he's in the credits he's was in that the kind credit. of like a, was that kind of like a little kind of a homage to his kind of work in like synchro mysticism in a way oh completely i mean seeing as how lauren like he knew i mean lauren knew about this project from the beginning i think we were trying to like get him involved in some way earlier on but there was some other thing that he was doing we we have a pretty good relationship particularly bill with lauren and um they've you know bill in using his filmmaking capabilities has helped out Lauren a lot with the, um, uh, the crypto museum and stuff like that. So he's, you know, he's a real big booster and supporter of us. And I, we, we really couldn't, you know, be happier about that because he's such a fantastic, you know, guy and a, a hero of ours. Um, so yeah, we essentially like the only way we could get him to be in the film is if we went to the museum and shot him there, you know, um, which I totally understand because the guy's got stuff to do. Um, so we did that. We went up there and we really didn't know where it would fit, but we just kind of wanted it to have something, um, 
because he'd been, you know, I mean, Lauren is, I think he's the reason why we ended up meeting Go Rightly and, um, you know, uh, he's introduced us to some other people like uh, he hooked us up with uh, Jerome Clark and he, we went and did a, a pretty long interview with him last summer that we haven't used for anything yet, but we will be doing something with it soon. Um, so he's been like a big supporter of Bright Rectangle Films and all the stuff we've been doing. So, yeah, we just wanted to get him in there and uh, uh, in some way, shape or form. Yeah. So you interviewed, you said Jerome Clark? Yeah, Jerome yeah. Clark. Yeah, he's been Lawrence been helping us. We've been um we would like to um and this is still in a very embryonic stage, so we haven't really started talking to people about it, but we'd like to do uh some sort of some sort of like documentary style either series or um film on uh essentially on Fortean research. Um but like really where it stands today. So we have, you know, we interviewed Lauren about his identification as a Fortean and he talked about some pretty cool stuff, including like how he uh, used his status as a Fortean uh, to, uh, for his conscientious objection to the Vietnam war, like rather oh, than, being, wow. yeah, really? it's really, really cool. That's stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we we you know interviewed Lauren, we interviewed uh, Go Rightly, and we interviewed um, uh, we interviewed uh, Jerry, and we also interviewed uh, Stephanie Quick because we were out in um, uh, San Francisco and she was there. Um, uh, the idea would be to sort of have people who are like you know Lauren or Jerry, who are like the older guard Fortians, uh, people who were approached the subject of, you know, the paranormal, not from the siloed, you know, realms of UFOs or Bigfoot, but really, right. you know, in a broad sense. Um, and then to sort of open that up uh, to talk to people that are kind of continuing that tradition these days. So, you know, you guys, uh, Kutchin, Soraya, you know, uh, um, other people like that, that approach things from more of a Fortean perspective. So how did, uh, how did Mr. Banal get... Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply involved with this mr Pinal got involved in this because of go rightly and um uh the fact that we were going to be in massachusetts and i think it was me that, that like i think maybe go rightly was thinking about hooking up with banal just to like hang out and i was like my god we should have banal in this um like are you kidding me banal of america so uh go rightly asked banal and banal kindly said yes yeah and that was it was like a no-brainer yeah, yeah, that's pretty much how it went down. And Adam, like, talked to you guys and got me, uh, you know, I don't know if it was already a role in the movie or what, but luckily, 
uh, you had me do shit in the movie. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, we, we, you know, we, I had lines and stuff, which is awesome. That's right. <laughs> yes. No, we, we, we specifically made sure that that was created for you. I, you know, I don't, I think we had an idea that we wanted to have there be tiny and, uh, have there be an assistant. I don't think even yet think he had a name, but, uh, once you agreed, we're like, oh, we gotta give him a real role then. So, yeah, it was, yeah. uh, custom made for you. <laughs> So Banal came, you, you came through Go Rightly. Through Go Rightly, indeed. Yeah, and yeah. then we ended up going to show, it was actually a pretty weird screening. We went to show an early, earlier cut of this film at the crypto conference, at the, uh, the uh, Lawrence conference in Portland last year. And it was awesome, like, that we got to do it. But, like, honestly, like, we were showing, um, Seth uh, was showing Terror in the Skies. Um, mm-hmm. Seth and, yeah, Seth Breedlove. And it was like, it was, you know, I mean, I think people appreciated it, but at least the, the crowd there, like, they wanted tracks. Like, they did, they were like, why are we watching this, you know, weird indie film? Um, uh, at least, at least I'd say like 95% of them. Lauren was awesome about letting us kind of like do a test screening there, uh, you know, special premiere. But yeah, it was, um, uh, it was it was a weird situation because I think it was I think people really were like expecting it to be like a documentary on like mound culture or something like that. And when there was no Bigfoot um, and there were no inter- there were no interviews, uh, people had no idea what to do with it. Yeah, I think also it was uh, it came at the very, very end of a very long day. And it was like it's hard to at least for me, it was like that it's just hard to true. After you, you know, you've been there since nine in the morning. I think the movie started like seven or eight at night. It was, it was just really, you know, it was just a long day. It was a totally long day. It was, it was just funny because uh, I, it really, for, at least for me, it was really like I was like, oh, this was the wrong choice. Like we should have had, we should have done something on, uh, you know, the 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 kindly wood ape Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> I was really. Um, surprised and impressed with uh adam go rightly the if there's one thing that could happen from making this film it would be that i I would be really happy about it would be like adam go rightly getting a film career as like a harry dean stanton style (laughs) character actor like oh yeah yeah. i did want to ask you because there's there is another element in this film and this kind of is going to segue into the discussion of your other film there's a very lovecraftian element to this yes. film as well yeah so uh, that's like it's like it's like you took a whole bunch of stuff put it in a blender and this film yeah. came out well yeah. my right. understanding is that uh the author though um liber is that how you say it he was he was really influenced by by lovecraft he was and you know bill knows more about um his relationship with lovecraft but they were in correspondence um and uh, uh you know he wasn't really liber wasn't part of that like crew the like block you know uh robert block and uh robert uh not robert anton wilson clark action smith and all those guys the sort of um robert e howard he uh but he was corresponding with lovecraft and um i think like the similarities that i would say between the two of them are very much in sort of their approach to the unnatural being rooted in this sort of pulp style um and i mean that in, like not as a derogatory thing like you know no. this is where we get some of the best you know uh paranormal fiction um of our time is from the pulps um 
And uh, I think later in life, um, one of the last pieces that Liber wrote was, it started out as a serialized um, uh, story called, what was it called? Like the, the, the Strange Brown Thing or something? It had a, a name like that. But it ended up being collected into this book called um, Our Lady of Darkness. Uh, and it's essentially like, I don't know if you guys read uh, any... Uh, sci-fi or fantasy authors like uh, China Muval or something like that. Um, but there's this sort of like uh, this this new these, this, this current of new authors that are kind of like new weird authors that are very much working in the same, um, uh, uh, you know, spaces like, you know, classic weird fiction. Um, and this book, Our Lady of Darkness, was, you know, basically what I'm trying to get at is that it was really ahead of its time uh, in sort of kind of taking these Lovecraftian currents and updating them to what is essentially the 20th century city. So it ends up becoming, it's this uh, like kind of urban fantasy novel almost, uh, but they get into this idea of like geomancy for the cities and like the idea of a city, like an urban center, having this, um, you know, sort of occult resonance to it. Uh, yes. And there are sort of these Lovecraftian currents that go in there. And yeah, so he's, you know, I wouldn't say that he's working, he wasn't was working specifically in that same sort of like, cosmic horror um, milieu as uh, Lovecraft in particular, but there was crossover beyond just beyond their conversations with one another. Um, and that definitely is coming through in the hell in the whole, um, just because that's like part of, you know, me as a storyteller and Bill too, but especially me, that was like, you know, I can never, I can never get that early influence of Lovecraft out of my system because yeah. I think it was, you know, reading it whenever I was an early reader and my parents let me read a lot of kind of whatever I wanted. So like, I remember picking up like when I was like 12, like stuff like Dracula, like Bram Stoker's original Dracula, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and mm -hmm. Lovecraft stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, I still, I'm still trying to get that feeling or recreate as a filmmaker, that feeling that I got, when I first read Lovecraft, that like the 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 spookiness of it, the you know the his expression of cosmic horror, um, yeah, yeah, those those elements uh, in an urban setting, I think, are being really well articulated right now across the pond by the uh, folk horror revival folks. Yes, uh, they've indeed. got a the series of these two books, uh, Urban Weird, mm -hmm. Volume One and Two. They're yeah. really great. You should check them yeah. out. I have heard of those that I have not uh, looked them at. Yeah, that's totally coming from the same place. Absolutely. Yep. And so that kind of brings us to almost like pre-Lovecraft, your other film that I got to watch yesterday, which yes. is called Corpse. Yes. And that is also available uh, for anybody that wants to watch it on Prime. Uh, I would uh, suggest, I think it is one of the few reviews that it's had uh, as the reviewer said, boil up some mushroom tea and enjoy the art school vibes. <laughs> hey. Um, you know, and I'll, 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 I'll take that. Uh, yeah, this, this film, it's, it's been around for a while and that like I started to, uh, produce it, um, God, in like 2015. Um, uh, no earlier than that. I'm sorry, 2013. So it's been like a long time in the making, um, and uh yeah it was essentially uh it was an ex it was it was probably like the first big project that i did out of grad school and i think that you know to some degree you can kind of tell that because my mind was still in this very 
um, I would, how do you describe it? Uh, I don't want to say like masturbatory, but it's a little wanky, um, uh, space where, you know, like completely uh, with one's, uh, head in the clouds, kind of, you know, just thinking about stuff and, you know, not really thinking about how it's going to come across at the very end. Um, just personal. That, yeah. Personal in that sense. Um, so, uh, yeah, that being said, it was this, um, uh, Essentially, like, I wanted to take The King in Yellow, which is, I would consider a modern myth, and I wanted to try to um, take that and work with that to not necessarily build or create new myths, but to use that as, like, uh, a materia for uh, engagement in, like, the collective world building that cosmic horror has sort of, you know, become over the past century. Um, but at the same time, I also wanted to use an experiment uh, with a uh, this idea that I had of kind of um, mashing up or creating this alchemy between um, experimental film practices, particularly ones that came from structural materialist film um, techniques. It was a school in the late 60s. I studied with a couple of guys that were sort of famous from there. That and um, uh, magical techniques. Um, so in particular, uh, techniques that would come you know, more from, I would say, like the Peter Carroll uh, chaos magic, uh, the sort of that revival, the UK revival um, of chaos magic in uh, uh, in like the 90s, uh, well, 70s through the 90s. So Ramsey Dukes, Pete Carroll, um, Phil Hine, uh, sort of building on some of the practices that they had. And this is something that I started coming up with when I was in grad school. Uh, I studied with this guy, Tony Conrad, um, who is... Uh, you can look him up. Some people know him. He was this artist that was like a, uh, uh, he was a, a contemporary of Warhol, and he's probably most famous for his music. He is one of the first minimalist uh, musicians, composers. He was uh, doing stuff with like Lamont, um, uh, was it Lamont Young? And yeah. he was, uh, you know, involved with the, uh, uh, well, he he claims he was he gave the Velvet Underground their name. Uh, I think there might be some corroboration of that on uh, uh, the internet somewhere uh, that it was like an S and M book that Tony had at his apartment. But anyway, he's from that scene. He's just really he was he passed away. He's just a really weird sort of uh, artist. You can find some documentaries on him and stuff. Um, and he had uh, uh, he was part of what ended up becoming the structural film. Um, movement and a lot of the stuff they were doing I found to be very similar at least in the way that it approaches trying to create something that uh, chaos magic does where you're essentially trying to create something that uh, acts as a um, uh, you're trying to you're trying to give uh, form in either a glyph or, you know, a sigil or, uh, you know, whatever it is that you're creating, a sigil or a mantra or um, uh, something like that, that you, uh, you're trying to, um, you through symbolic thinking, um, uh, create a visual representation of uh, a desire or a thought or something like that. And then you are charging it in some way. And you are trying to sort of forget about it and let it do its automated sort of tasks. 
And the structuralist filmmakers, um, and Tony, even though he wouldn't really identify as a structuralist, he was uh, interested in, they're very interested in very similar things um, in that they wanted to create these uh, um, film pieces that were not about anything, um, and, uh, that, uh, like formally, like you wouldn't look at them and they're not a story or anything, but yet they are still representing uh, an emotion or a concept or a thought. Yeah, it's, and, almost like it, it, it's almost like it takes the viewer along for a ride. Yeah. And, you know, so Tony made yeah. this, yeah, Tony made this film called The Flicker, which essentially it was uh, alternating black and white frames. And this was like really revolutionary for when it yeah. came out. Um, I hope no one was epileptic. Right. Exactly. Well, that's what he was trying to, he was trying to create, like essentially he was trying to. Uh, put the audience in a hypnagogic state is what he was trying to do. He, he, I mean, he was, he wouldn't, yeah, he, he would not pull any punches talking about that. But like the idea, it was very similar. So I found some similarities between those and it's something that I wanted to try out. And I'm being long winded here. It's something I wanted to try out with Corpse. Um, so essentially, uh, you know, we took this story of the King in Yellow, Bill and I, and we came up with all these different um, uh, sort of methods uh, in order to build up the script and the characters and the way that the film was going to be produced and stuff like that that were based upon um, uh, yeah, these different processes that I kind of custom made that were a, a blend of uh, essentially chaos magic and um, structuralist filmmaking. Uh, so I was using a lot of things, like you know, using the tarot and the I Ching, um, right. uh, sort of divinatory uh, methods, um, uh, you know, automating the ways in which um, uh, we sort of adapted different things from the films. I also set up this whole uh, sort of blind process with the actors where they didn't know what else was going on in the story besides their own lines, which is not an uncommon thing for some directors to do, but I was trying to do it in this way that I really wanted them to sort of be uh, contributing to the whole but not have an understanding of it. Um, uh, and there are these, you know, sort of processes that I had them go through, um, uh, in terms of like focusing and meditation and stuff like that. And there are these particular, um, uh, like I would give them prompts and things, um, uh, to look at before they would perform. So, you know, a lot of that ends up being, I don't yeah. want to say lost in the final piece. I mean, you see the final result there, but obviously the process isn't something that unless you're reading, you know, a thesis next to it, you'll know what's going on. But it really was, uh, you know, equally a process-based thing uh, as well as, like, making a film the final result. And it also yeah. was this sort of end of this, like, track that I had had doing these uh, these types of films. Anyway, so, yeah. Well, can you kind of describe, because you... you you said something there and I wanted to get you kind of expound yeah. on it's uh, the idea of, of the Robert Chambers, the King in yellow being a modern myth. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I've never read it, but I kind of am a little familiar with it. Um, yeah. mostly because of, uh, true detective, the first season of true detective. Sure. For sure. The, the, yeah. The King in yellow, the yellow yeah. King and the Carcosa and, um, yeah. uh, Walter Bosley wrote a book about, that going back to Bosley's come up again in this episode, but he wrote a book yeah. about uh, Ambrose Bierce yep. and Destination Carcosa, and yep. kind of like this idea that like you know Bierce is kind of or Chambers is kind of like this go between between the gothic horror of Bierce and kind of the more modern horror of like um, Lovecraft. 
in a sense. And he's, he's totally right. And this, you know, it was funny because we started putting Corpse together before um, uh, True Detective came out. Uh, and, I mean, they did a very different thing with it, uh, uh, which was cool. But, yeah, that it started, like, popping up as soon as we decided to do this. And I have read Walter's um, uh, book, and it, it's, I mean, it's he's completely working in a similar uh, space that we were thinking um, about this. So, yeah, I... Uh, Robert Chambers, so if anybody that doesn't know, The King in Yellow was an anthology uh, that was uh, published in 1895, and um, it essentially is a series of stories that are all based uh, around or involve references to this um, cursed text, which is a play called The King in Yellow, and in it, uh, they refer to things like uh, Carcosa and Hades and uh, all these uh, names that have um, the uh, since been incorporated into the Lovecraftian mythos. Um, and uh, in the anthology series, you know, uh, in, in the stories that are within the King in Yellow, you know, when people read this uh, book, they sort of go mad. And a lot of the uh, sort of themes that are uh, involved in it are um you know based around sort of uh uh, uh like not i don't want to say like uh, uh karmic karmic debt or something like you know you do something at one point and it always catches up with you like the devil always catches up with you type thing uh Anyway, that um, uh, is the book that Robert Chambers created. And it really is, you know, liter from a literary standpoint, um, uh, considered um, one of the first, like, weird fiction that's working in that space um, of this sort of interstitial uh, fiction that, yeah, like Walter says, takes from gothic horror and then sort of brings it into this more modern space. Um, but it also is, I won't say the first instance, but I think an important instance of uh, that mythos sharing that you ended up seeing amongst the Lovecraftian writers and then um, since then, how that's grown, uh, where Robert Chambers was, uh, he took this, the, the King in Yellow, um, uh, this, uh, the idea of this cursed text actually came from Ambrose Bierce, who used it earlier. So this is something that he borrowed from Bierce and created, uh, sort of worked it in as a part of his own mythos, you know, added this sort of weird spin to it, uh, and it ended up being uh, like kind of a kernel. I don't want to say catalyst, but it certainly was something that was... Um, uh, uh, one of the primary, I think, drivers behind Lovecraft and everything that came after him. Um, uh, and the fact that the King in Yellow and Hastur and the Yellow Sign has become sort of, you know, part and parcel of the larger, you know, uh, Thulu, Nyarlathotep, Yogg-Sothoth, you know, um, Azathoth, uh, all of these different sort of creatures and entities um, uh really I found to be interesting and I wanted you know to sort of use this because I felt like it had become something that was uh, you know a story that was greater than itself it had sort of already like transmuted in uh, from simply being a book to being a concept and since I was working in this uh, uh, space that really is you know trying to essentially create um, uh, uh, symbolic representations of concepts uh, and those concepts being cosmic horror and, uh, you know, um, uh, nihilism and apocalypse and the end of the world and all that stuff. Um, 
made sense to 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 um, uh, do it in that way. Yeah. When you were really, you know, almost doing some of these films as I guess just you could just call it a magical working, yeah, and charging them and incorporating all these different elements. Um, did you do you have any strange occurrences that happened around them? Yeah. Um, I mean, I do. Uh, most of my strange occurrences are not overt, uh, but right. I would say it's like, I mean, you, you know it when it happens. Like if you're yeah. sort of in that liminal space and the synchronicities are flying. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. And this film did, Corpse in particular, um, I mean, The Hill and the Hole coincided definitely with, you know, important points in my life, but not in the same way that, you know, uh, Corpse did and that it was... Um, uh, there were a lot of things that were going on, um, in my life, uh, at the time, um, uh, just, you know, normal physical stuff like this was, you know, my wife was, uh, pregnant when we were doing this, we were moving to another house, uh, another apartment. We were living in Brooklyn at the time. Um, I was really dissatisfied with my job. I became completely disillusioned with the industry. I was working at MTV at the time. Um, and, uh, I mean, I could talk for a long time about the archonic nature of working for a major media corporation, uh, which still terrifies me to this day, <laughs> but, um, oh my God. Uh, yeah, like, uh, whew, uh, that, that killed a part of me. So I was really dissatisfied with that. And I'd actually started to, uh, while I had been, up to that point, very interested in um, the occult and uh, everything Fordian from uh, sort of an academic research perspective. Uh, it wasn't, and very much so, especially in grad school too, is when I started incorporating these ideas of like, you know, chaos magic and, and stuff like that. Uh, but it was all very much in the background. Um, and I started really bringing it to the front um, in sort of my personal life too. And it's all also happened after I had, um, all of this, like, you know, starting corpse, uh, which essentially started, I would say like January, 2015 in December of 2014, I had a, uh, very intense experience. Um, uh, uh, I'm talking to Soraya, uh, I'm pretty sure it was a, a sort of Kundalini type experience where I essentially, uh, 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 energy shot from the base of my spine all the way through the top of my head. And for an uh, indefinite period of time, I was um, uh, floating out of my body, uh, out of body experience, watching myself. Um, and then I got sucked back in. Um, uh, and all of this stuff started happening. You know, uh, that happened to me in 2000, December 2014. And all of this you know, started to work on corpse after that. Um, and, uh, while I was working on it, uh, there were several, you know, over, you know, since I guess at this point, I'm sorry, 2013, uh, since, since that point, um, uh, it had been, uh, uh, I'm trying to think yet. Yeah, I'm sorry, 2013, I'm getting my years mixed up. So 2012, 2013. So yeah, this started in 2000, January of 2013. And essentially for like the nine years, um, since then, probably stopping about a couple years ago, uh, it seemed to me like I was on a very, very, um, would be a good way to describe it. Uh, I was being pushed in certain directions, uh, by 
uh, uh, synchronous forces mm-hmm. in a you way were, that is I am, was unable to deny and I was unable yeah. to resist. <laughs> you, en- you entered Chapel Perilous. Yeah, pretty much, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So it was very much, yeah. It was a, it was a Robert. It was very much a Robert Anton Wilson, um, uh, uh, you know, period uh, of my life um, in the way that you know. I think we all recognize Cosmic Trigger as being, you know, it's like a personal narrative. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the the only way you can, for whatever it influences you and whatever you get out of it, you can only take it as being this, like, you know, this was completely an internal, this was, a, this was Robert Anton Wilson's journey. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he does a very good job of describing it in a way that we can sort of wrap our heads around it, but we would never understand it were we not him, you know? Yeah. Well, and going back to Hill in the Hole in the protagonist, uh, Tom <laughs> Digby, you kind yeah. of have this idea of, uh, you know, supernatural things helping him along the way. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 completely. No, he's, uh, from the very beginning, it's, uh, he's sort of on a, uh, his strings are being pulled. We actually had a scene that we cut that was, uh, God, I forget what it was. Yeah, no, it was a scene with him essentially getting fired from the Bureau of Land Management, uh, uh, and it was happening in real time. And then we sort of saw him, uh, like, he kind of falls into, you know, he gets a phone call, and these sort of things start lining up. Anyway, it, it, was, it was too long exposition-wise, but that was what we were thinking about trying to set. I mean, that was definitely um, uh, something we are thinking about and trying to set up. This idea, I mean, that's like a movie trope that I love, this idea of like the the hero that doesn't necessarily get called to adventure, but falls into it. It's yeah. like, uh, like my favorite Scorsese film is After Hours. That kind. Of, mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody, if you have seen that uh, uh, Scorsese film. If you haven't, you should totally watch it. It's awesome. It's um, That's one of his least known, but yeah, that's the, yeah. that is one I'd like to see. Yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, uh, it's basically about it's like Griffin Dunn having this crazy surreal uh, like Lynchian nightmare in uh, like Soho in uh, New York in the eighties. It's great, yeah. What? Because uh, I was I wanted to ask you what you kind of like your influences were, but like what other filmmakers do you think that are really heavily that are now that are like making films now currently that are really influenced by occult themes? Man, um, I don't know if there are as many, uh, like prominent filmmakers. I mean, you have the people like, you know, Ari Aster, who's doing all Mm -hmm. of these, you know, and I, I really wouldn't, I mean, I don't mean to do this. I, I don't mean to sound like I'm scolding him for not properly, you know, representing the grimoires, but I get the feeling that like, it's just material for him. Like he has no interest in it. Uh, but I uh-huh. could be wrong about that. I could be wrong about that. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, there's the, like, you know, for people that have seen hereditary his breakout film, uh, it has a lot to do with demonology and the demon Paimon is a, a big part of it. And, you know, anybody who knows anything about ceremonial magic, you know, could get Ren on here and he could tell you who Paimon actually is as a demon completely different from sort of how it's represented in this like rosemary's baby kind of gory way uh but yeah harry astor um i i don't think he is uh as much um 
I don't know if there are any contemporary filmmakers that are necessarily, and I'm probably like leaving out a bunch and people, please, you know, contact me and correct me. Tell me who you are because I'm obviously, you know, lacking and knowing about people who are doing this. What about Lynch? Right. Um, So those are the people that I think are doing this. Um, Basically, I'm saying I'm sure there are a lot of young filmmakers out there that are doing cool stuff that I don't know about because I'm a, you know, dumb older man. Um, uh, So, yeah. So you have people like um, Lynch. Yes, Lynch is absolutely he was the person I was going to mention next. Um, Lynch is, you know, my biggest influence, I would say, Um, uh, very much in the same way that, uh, you know, uh, reading Lovecraft gave me this feeling that Mm -hmm. I can't recreate that i'm still trying to recreate same thing happened to me when i first um uh saw twin peaks the series on tv and um i think he completely is working i mean he's like you know essentially uh twin peaks uh season three is like kenneth grant fan fiction um like he it's completely he's 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 talking about all and whether or not uh that's mark frost or that's david lynch i don't know i have a feeling it actually might be mark frost who's sort of trying to put a lot of this, um, uh, if you've ever read The Secret History of, or, uh, of Twin Peaks, the book that goes along with that, they basically, he pulls in in a very Kenneth Grant, uh, you know, uh, Alan Green Greenfield type way, pulls in all of these different currents and creates this like um, uh, uber narrative, like Adam Curtis, everything is connected type thing uh where it's you know uh everything from like nixon to uh uh um uh lewis and clark are involved in you know the black lodge and you know this this whole thing and it really ends up being very much reminding me of kind of that like sprawling um uh the the sprawling uber meta narrative that kenneth Mm -hmm. grant kind of does um yeah and I don't know if that's, you know, David Lynch is, it's funny because David Lynch also has the the TM side to things. And, you know, yeah, yeah. I have a particular, you know, I was raised and I could probably do an entire show. I, pro- I probably should do an entire show talking about this figure that uh, was the, the central figure in the cult sect, you know, new religious movement that my parents were involved in that I was uh, part of, which is the, the Meher Baba uh, movement. And, uh, most of what you find about him is just like sort of 60s hippie uh, guru stuff. But much like, you know, Gurdjieff and uh, others, he has a interesting past. But um, anyway, um, uh, all of that, uh, uh, you know, all of these um, larger sort of, uh, uh, I think, everything is connected type narratives um, uh at least for me, I think that, and maybe I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but for me, at least my interest is not only in that I feel like there are ways to make these connections, you know, uh, uh, tools you can use Lauren Coleman, twilight language, or, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the new Aeon Kabbalah, uh, you know, alphabet or whatever, if you're trying to sort of parse these things out, um, I am interested in the, the, whether you call it Fordian approach in trying to see where these connections are um, uh, happening and whether or not it's uh, whether or not it's something that can end up having um, uh, some sort of re-representable basis in material. Uh, I mean, I don't know, Sarai and I were talking at one point, uh, uh, Sarai from Where's the Rogo, about how um, uh, 
how difficult it is to represent um, the supernatural in like reality television, like or represent experience. Uh, but for me, it's still like in the same way that like I'm trying to, you know, uh, uh, recreate how David Lynch made me feel or Lovecraft made yeah. me feel. Um, you know, I'm trying to uh, uh, recreate these things that are essentially experiential, subjective uh, yeah. stuff. And I think that a lot of the filmmakers that are working in the occult space, um, uh, like Lynch, to come back to what I was talking about in terms of TM, um, you know, I, I, I do think that TM's got some, you know, in terms of it being a movement and uh, occult to some degree, there are some things that are problematic about it. But the essentials that he's talking about, which are, a meditative yogic practice um that's going to tap you into something that essentially is the occult uh, as far yeah. as i'm concerned and so i think that you know whether or not it's mark frost that's writing the stuff or david lynch he is one of the people that's representing that um mm -hmm. uh that kind of stuff i also think more recently and i know that uh red pill junkie did a great article on this in daily grail but uh duncan trussell's um uh uh, if anybody doesn't know him, Duncan Trussell does a podcast, and he's a comedian, uh, but he's also a follower of Ram Dass, and he's sort of this esoteric um, uh, dude, and he did this really cool um, animated piece with a guy who does uh, um, the, I forget his name, uh, who animates Adventure Time, where essentially they took like Duncan Trussell's uh, um, interviews from his podcast with people like Damien Eccles or Jason Louvre, um, and say what you want about the people uh they're interesting conversations about the kind of stuff that we're talking about and uh essentially uh the, uh, the animator makes these crazy like hyper psychedelic you know um weird sci-fi you know multi-genre freak out animations that go along with it and, and if you haven't checked it out i definitely suggest people do it's on netflix and it's like a half hour show um and i think that's kind of working in that i don't want to say it's an occult space but it's like it's definitely in a um uh a place where the engagement with um like consciousness or, or the the standpoint from which they are approaching reality is not the one that most people in the world are um yeah <laughs> right and the, i think the way a lot of those directors you mentioned do and the way that you do represent the phenomenon or whatever it is is that you present what's around it um and that's creating atmosphere and that's wow. i guess in the 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 uh you know alien kind of way the first alien movie the the yeah. mystery itself that lovecraftian um you know language or, or feeling and atmosphere that's that's the way to do it you know not do you know crazy cgi monsters or whatever so i think you did a really good job with that a lot of people are mining this material um, and it's going to yeah. be weird because I think a lot of the material that's closer to our hearts, you know, is maybe less known stuff is really going to be mined. I think yeah. we can see that in like Stranger Things with the Montauk stuff right. and right. and everything. But, uh, you know, everyone will be able to see uh, how deep you guys are actually into the stuff and how much respect is like paid back to, you know, how many nods there is. And I think that's real important and people will definitely appreciate I think, it. I think that does come through. I mean, like, you know, even with somebody like Lynch or, you know, uh, that's established, I think that like, you know, wherever it's coming from, you can see when that, that sort of, uh, the sincerity comes through yeah. in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not so exploitative. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, you're going to get you. I think it always comes in this sort of like, uh, 
I mean, that's the trickster for you is that yeah. if these things are going to come up in conversation. You're going to get the other side of it, which ends up being, you know, like the stranger things. And I, I mean, I enjoyed the first couple of seasons, but at some I point it, 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 it ended. Yeah. Like at some point I want to say with the last season, it ended up feeling a little bit like they were just doing like, it was like nostalgia for nostalgia's sake. It stopped right. being about, it was sure, like, some we're going to show you, we're going to show you, you know, what the old Big Mac box looked like. Remember <laughs> this? You know, um, whereas in the beginning of the first season, it was still like, they were still thinking about, yeah, Montauk and all of that stuff. I mean, I, I all of this is ripe for, uh, you know, representing stuff. Oh, this is what I was going to say is that I think that uh, what you were saying, Serfiel, about how, uh, you know, showing around, you know, or like in Alien is a perfect example. It's like a pitch perfect movie. I couldn't, I, God, I love that film so much. And I think that, you know, uh, one of the things that actually I presented a academic paper on this, one of the few that get accepted because of how weird they are, uh, on how, um, uh, uh, David Lynch's representation of the supernatural, I essentially think whether or not he's expecting, whether or not he's intending to do this, he's representing it in terms of um, uh, uh, like a mirror experience, in terms of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 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 well, where, why am I forgetting the name completely? Um, in, in terms of, uh, God, I'm forgetting the phrase. I'm going to sound like such an idiot here. Um, uh, Mike Cleland, Owls. Uh, um, uh, the, me- the Messengers? Yeah, no, no, but what's that, um, uh, what's the name for when, like... Screen memory? Screen memory, oh my god, um, uh, shoot me, why did I forget that? Screen memory, in that, uh, so essentially saying that, like, in film, I think that, uh, some of the best depictions of the supernatural are when you think of it from the standpoint of screen memory, in that, you know, uh, and particularly the way that screen memory is, you know, dissected and represented and talked about in occult paranormal, you know, UFO circles, um, uh, you know, I think that that's whether or not you want to call it like shooting sort of around the scariness or what, or, you know, Mm. uh, the whole don't show the monster it's scarier that way thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can also look at it from the standpoint of screen memory too. And that, uh, you know, in particular with like the weird sort of effects that Lynch used in uh, season three of Twin Peaks, I feel like, and if he's not doing it, then I think it's the right way to do it and I'm going to do it, is that like representing the supernatural through this way that doesn't look, it's not like CGI reality. There's something that's... Uh, um, you know, you're using artistic expression, you're mm-hmm. using like um, uh, some sort of like, you know, re-representation of it and couching that within the idea of like screen memory, not necessarily being screen memory that is, you know, programmed upon you as a, uh, you know, test subject, because I'm not talking nuts and bolts, but I mean screen memory in terms of uh, what you are seeing is either something that you do not have the senses mm. to process so you're seeing mm. it as something different your um, mind is trying to grasp it right. so it's using its heuristics to put something together like a dream exactly. logic kind of thing exactly exactly um uh or the idea that what is being you're is being seen is uh some sort of like avataric representation of something that exists in a non-physical plane that is using the material that exists in the physical plane yeah, uh, to, yeah. you know so all these different ways of sort of looking at the screen memory that aren't like nuts and bolts i think are 
um, really good ways of representing the um, uh, uh, the experience, uh, or I think there are better ways of representing the experience. Um, uh, for me, at least, I find them to be more effective in a cinematic sense, uh, and that's what I appreciate about some of these filmmakers. I think that are working from that point of sincerity. Is I think you'll find most of them are um, using something that is uh, not necessarily exactly a screen memory. Um, uh, uh, approach, but they are looking at it. Yeah, like in an alien, you know, you are you're not showing it, even if it's as simple as you know using the uh, using that method. Well, let me ask you this, Chris. It's kind of the time that we have left, and Tim, we want you your input on this too. It's like anything that you see, like because you said that you know you used to work for MTV, because you because you're kind of like a former television guy. Yeah, and is there anything that you see as far as like the paranormal television series or shows that may or reality stuff that may kind of give you hope that they're good, that things are going in the right direction and it doesn't necessarily have to be something that's like a network thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, uh, and I've stated this, uh, on, on record before I am. Well, I did not, uh, well, I, well, I honestly did not, um, like I couldn't get into Hellier. Uh, it didn't, some, it wasn't something that really drew me in and I you needed know, to try to watch it a couple of times. The, uh, methodology by which they are, um, you know, uh, uh, Newkirks are going about doing it. Um, uh, you know, the, the sort of community DIY punk rock, um, uh, you know, uh, baseline from which they're working, um, uh, the engagement with the material and, you know, I know there are some criticism that's, you know, lobbed in the social media universe, uh, upon how they've presented themselves and how they've engaged with magic or synchro mysticism or whatever. But, um, all of that aside, cause I think a lot of that is, uh, uh, you know, opinion, um, uh, I think that you know everything about the project is everything that I want to see um, happening more and more. Uh, and I mean, this is coming from a guy, for me at least, like before I was doing film, I was you know doing music, and you know I was like all about the DC hardcore scene when I was in high school and Discord Records, and you know, right on. do it yourself, like you yeah. do it yourself. Um, uh, that's a and, big, big influence on me too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's huge. Um, and I, I, yeah, I've been lucky enough to like, you know, I played in a band with, uh, uh, like I live down, I live in Baltimore. And so I'm kind of friends with some of those guys now. And, um, it's still something that like, you know, I try to inject into everything that I do, uh, particularly filmmaking. Um, uh, so when I see something like the way that, you know, the New Kirks have done Hellier, I just, I mean, I'm, that's, I'm all about that. Even if it's not something that like is I can get into. And I, I also, I feel like I'm deficient because everybody has really like loved it in an entertaining way, or it's spoken to them in some sort of like deeper synchromistic way, like Ren was talking about. Um, and it didn't hit me in any of those ways. I thought it was cool and well done. It just, you know, I ended up watching something else after I tried a few episodes in both seasons. Um, and maybe I'll approach it again. But everything else that has been, you know, involved, like even the way that they present the stuff, I like. Um, but I just, yeah, uh, I have to be honest. I don't want to be a jerk. Tim, what about Tim? What about you, man? Uh, I really don't watch any paranormal TV, but I like the uh, the Hellier stuff. I think that's really good. Um, Seth Breedlove's doing some good stuff. Yeah, uh, Seth. 
I was, should mention Seth too. Absolutely, I think Seth is doing some cool stuff. I'm excited. Yeah, he's really to see innovative. More. He's trying different stuff uh, mm -hmm. each time, which I really respect and appreciate. And from ta yeah, talking to him too, like he's definitely like he's a DIY guy also, and I really respect that. And he really wants to keep that. I think I heard him like the last couple interviews I heard, he was even talking about that too. So I hope he continues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he's, uh, I like a lot of his stuff. And yeah, him and Hellier are the only two that I really um, pay any attention to. Most of the other stuff is pretty cookie cutter stuff, like on basic cable and shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think well, just, it's, yeah. it's more go. It's more going that. It's just going that direction now as yeah. the technology gets cheaper. People are able to do their own their own stuff. I mean, we talked to Seth not that long ago, and he pretty much we talked about. I think Minerva Monster was the first one that he made, and he talked yeah. about how it was you know, pretty much a shoestring budget. It was pretty much learn as you go, and yeah. you know he's a little embarrassed by it now, but you know it was a learning experience for him, and now he's you know he's become one of the most well-known in that field yeah he's done a great job the cooler diy underground stuff is like the the good music oh yeah so the same the same is going to be now that you know these the means of making uh this type of content is so much more democratized you know it's going to be going to be the same when people you know graduate you know, we were talking about the like uh, mysteries of the unknown books. That's where you start when you're a kid, you know. And there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with being like a, a teenager and have your first little punkorama tape. But you know, yeah. you get get a little more refined taste, and and uh, that's kind of how we feel we are with the podcast. You know, when people need more, they need a little, you know, more substance. Uh, you just start going underground and finding all these people creating all this great stuff. Oh, definitely. And it's always like, you know, these, the smaller, like, you know, the scenes that organically build, like, you know, I didn't, I, I couldn't have told you, you know, three years ago that I would necessarily be, you know, kind of um, involved with the scene that, you know, you and Soraya and, uh, you know, Tim and Go Rightly, but it's one of these things that just like, when they come together, they come together. And, you know, that's when the, you get the coolest music and, you know, um, you know, art and, uh, uh, you know, films and all that stuff is when there is something that has been able to flourish on its own without the weight of the corporation. I mean, I'm beyond like my personal feelings about having worked at a corporation. Yeah, I'm vehemently anti-corporation. Um, uh, the killers of creativity and i can tell you that from first-hand perspective because it's, uh yeah you would not believe the hoops that they go through to make everything terrible well thank you so much chris this has been awesome oh uh, yeah this has been great thanks so much for having me on guys yeah please uh well well first actually tim you've been doing uh banal of america again right uh, yeah, yeah, we'll be back uh, Friday with Lauren Coleman, 9 p.m. Uh, oh, uh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So excited. Good. Yeah. yeah. I'll be listening live. I'll have yeah. a lot more to say on that show than I did on this one. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I completely, uh, uh, yeah. I, it's I not, nah, nah, Chris, it's all good. It's not all good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but also to, to mention that Tim will be joining us at least not physically, but online this year for Strange Realities 2020, because we're going to be doing it online. And I think by the time this is actually out, uh, we'll actually have an announcement on that. So Yeah, excellent. I, will, I, will, I can attend then. Yeah, it should be fun. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, you, can, you can attend. 
Everybody can attend. And so, Chris, tell everybody where they can find your stuff, where they can find Hill in the Hole, where they can find Corpse. Absolutely. All that, all that good material. Yeah, so you can either go to brightrectangle.com and the links are there, uh, or just go to uh, Amazon uh, Prime and you can, uh, if you're a member uh, Prime, it's free. Uh, both of them are free and just search for the corpse or the, the hill in the hole. You can watch those there. And uh, I'm sometimes on Twitter at the Chris Ernst, uh, but you know, uh, who wants to go there these days? Yes, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's very, very true. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much for both of you for being with us. And thank guys, you. stay on the line. We are going to close out this section, and we'll be back on Conspiracy Normal. Welcome back, guys, to Conspira Normal. That was a very interesting interview with uh, Chris Ernst, and we got to also talk to really the star of the film, if you want my opinion, Tim Banal, <laughs> <laughs> playing the playing the fry guy <laughs> in the film. Fryer, uh, fryer technician. Yeah, Friar Technician. I I really I really enjoyed uh, the interview that we did with Chris. It was uh, interesting, yeah. kind of get his ideas, kind of like you know, as a kind of like an occult filmmaker. Yeah, was was kind of interesting. You know, I um, there's there's definitely that aspect to uh, to that film, mm-hmm. and if you guys watch it, you'll kind of see what we're talking about. But you know. I uh I thoroughly I really like the film not not just because there's people that I know in it, which right. kind of helped. It was kind of made it a little more amusing to me, but it was uh it was very interesting and it's really up our alley as far as like the different kinds of oh, yeah. material that it talks about. So, uh, what were your thoughts on it? Because you I think you've actually watched it twice now. Yeah, I I really like it a lot. It's got all that kind of uh, weird Americana that I'm really into, um, and uh, it w- and it has the we talked about the atmosphere, and that's the number one quality I usually look for in movies, especially like you know ones to ones with a, like a darker edge or ones that are are, are have a high weirdness to them. Uh, but I was just, I was really impressed uh, and it was a great conversation. Um, sh- we share a lot uh, in common with all these kind of uh, currents that we're into. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was really great, man. Is there anything that you don't have to give away? We don't, no spoilers or anything, but like, just you can tell me, was there anything that you noticed from watching it a second time when you're not having to like kind of, because usually with films, when you're not having to watch the plot or kind of figure out the plot, and you can watch it a second time, you will get something that you didn't get before. So, was there anything that you noticed in it? Because I haven't. Yeah, watched it well, we time. talked about that. There's this like underlying uh, downerdian theme to it. Yeah. Um, and to not give it away, I'll just say right. that. So. Right. Right. You know, if you're well versed in that, then you can definitely. Uh, yeah, You'll so def- that was definitely probably get that. That happened the second time. Yeah, 
Okay. So that was something that you noticed more the second time than you watched it the first. Okay. Right. And I was, I was, I want to say I was a big fan of that mandate 33 stuff, which is where this YouTube series where, um, Bill Darman and some other people, uh, they go along the 33rd parallel to some of these sites, uh, and, uh, to some of these sites listed in uh, Weird America, and uh, that that I was a big fan of that, and and from like following that is when I first started seeing like things on social media about them. I think when they were doing their fundraising for it, um, you know, them working on a movie. So I already knew like, okay, these are guys. This is guys that are like really into these these currents and streams. Were you know pretty pretty deep into so this is going to be cool. You know, I already knew it was going to be pretty cool. Okay. I'm going to have to check that out and we, we should think about getting those guys on. Yeah. They seem, uh, you know, to, uh, to really be into that stuff. And, uh, this, uh, you know, this movie, I think for conspiracy normal listeners, I think they'll really like it. All right. Yeah. That's just the normal stuff. We're going to close out the show, but, uh, Patreon is there. Uh, should have something up. We we have started by the point that this is actually going to get released. We have started to release the videos from Strange Realities 2019. And this is the footage that we took last year. And that's going to be for our patrons for now. We've got some other ideas that we want to do with that. And that's because we are promoting... Strange Realities 2020, which you guys, by the time this is posted, you'll have already heard us talk about that on mm-hmm. a separate mini episode. But we are promoting that as an online only event simply because we don't know what's going to happen in the world and we want to be safe. And so we want to, you know, so there will be, there's, will be information about that. So check that out as well. But uh, Patreon, you can join for $1. And YouTube is um, up. We're over 1,000 subscribers now. Check us out on Conspiracy Normal Podcast. And also, leave us a good review. We've gotten a couple. We've gotten a few from people. And uh, we really appreciate those good five-star reviews, guys. So thanks so much. All right. I think that's it. Uh, Unless there's anything that you wanted to add. Let's wrap it up. All right, brother. So join us next time, guys, for more paranormal weirdness on Conspiranormal. Please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast.